Welcome to the Growth Investing Secret Podcast. This is Calvin Sito. And this is Jonathan Ang. The reason why we started this podcast is to help each household to have at least one full-time investor by investing to high-growth companies called Superstocks. We didn't come from well-to-do backgrounds and after many years of investing, we finally became full-time investors before the age of 30. This was only possible with growth investing. Our mission is to help both beginner and experienced investors get better investment returns. Don't settle for less. It is very possible that you can achieve out-of-the-world results and we have proven that it is possible through the returns of our community. So now, let's be committed to learn, dive in and get started on today's episode. All content from participants shall not be treated as professional advice or recommendation to buy or sell any position in any financial-related instruments. The content is made available for educational purpose only. We may buy any securities mentioned and we may stand to benefit financially if they rise in value. You should seek independent financial and legal advice before making any financial decisions. Hey everyone, it's Calvin here and I'm your host for today. Welcome everyone to our podcast. So if you love our podcast, please follow or subscribe our podcast. Our guest today comes from Canada and his name is Maxim. He outperformed the market by delivering 134% absolute returns in year 2020. As they say, you know, birds of the same feather flock together and our portfolios have some overlaps such as Clearpoint Neuro and Par Technology. It is someone that I admire a lot and I'm very proud to spend some time with him today. So welcome to our podcast, Maxim, and thank you for the, taking the time to be here. So we started talking to each other, you know, somewhere last year, uh, September. It, it feels like a long time, but ever since then, you know, you continue to inspire me with your investment philosophy and investment behavior, especially during this period of uh, volatilities. So today, could you share with us about your background, your journey, how you got started and, you know, how do you get your passion for investing? Yeah, well, thanks for having me, uh, Kelvin. I'm really glad we can make this happen. Um, I do hope my journey will uh, inspire some folks out there. It's funny you say we just started to talk in September because I've been following you for a while. So it's kind of funny we never talked before. But the reason I started to follow you is because you shared the book, The Slut Investor. So I was looking for this book online and for some reason you posted it. And that's how, you know, I found out about you, but uh, it took a while for us to talk. So yes, I'm a full-time investor now. I don't have a traditional background in finance, uh, so to speak. So I can explain a little bit where I come from. I started to work early in life when I was 15 years old. I had various students' jobs and right away I had to pay for my discretionary items, uh, you know, clothes, all that kind of stuff. And I had to pay for my college study as well. So I did not inherit any money in life or, you know, I learned the value of work really early, the value of money. So it helped me to start to save at an early age and also I think shape my frugal mindset that really helped me as well to become a full-time investor. After I finished my college studies, uh, my main career was in procurement and logistics. I worked in this field for about 16 years. I've covered, you know, on the operational side, I worked on the sales side, I worked on the key account management side. And uh, the last uh, few years, I worked as a strategic buyer, uh, sourcing in Asia, in Europe, uh, India, many countries over the world. I worked on two different ERP implementations. So you probably know SAP. I did various continuous improvement projects, innovation projects, and I work with you know everyone within an organization you can think of. I worked for uh, three companies total uh, during my career. So when I had the feeling, you know, I kind of hit a wall, that kind of stuff. So there was no more challenge for me. I kind of moved on. 
for another challenge. So during that time that I started to work, I did my university at night. So um, I got my employers to pay for my university based on certain certain grades I, I got at the time. So that was you know nice to have as well. So as I mentioned, I started to save early when I started as a student. You know, I saved in government bonds. I I didn't really know anything about investing at the time. I started to more, I would say, invest when I started my career. So employers had kind of fund pension plan that, you know, you would contribute a part and they would match a part. So I've optimized that all, all the time during my career. So started, they were offering mutual funds. So, and at some point I started to dig more into that and, you know, try to understand what are mutual funds, that kind of stuff. So I was way back then. And then I pulled out my money from all these pension funds and started to manage it myself. So I started with uh, exchange, you know, ETF. Uh, I started with passive investment strategy. So that kind of worked for me at the time. I was busy with my career and did that. But, you know, at some point I hit the financial crisis in 2008. Uh, everything, you know, went down. I, but, you know, my dad told me at the time, you'll see everything will bounce back. That's how the market works, that kind of stuff. He wasn't really investing, but just had some mutual funds. And that's what he told me. And I think that lesson kind of stick with me a little bit to wait and be patient. So anyway, it took maybe, you know, I, I, I dollar cost average per month. And I think, you know, two years after I was back to pre-crisis. So, uh, you know, that was a good lesson to, to, for me that I think is a reason probably where I, where I am right now. So after that, I discovered the FIRE movement. So I just wanted to highlight that because I think there's good principle for investors out there. You know, and the thing that stick with me was really the, um, you know, gaining the freedom, trying to quit the rat race. I mean, I was working a lot of hours and I think just that idea of freedom of time was kind of interesting for me. And I kind of started to look more into my budget at this point and increase my rate of saving at this point. And really focus more on investing. Another reason I wanted to get more freedom, you know, some people might ask, you know, why did you want it to become a full-time investor? I do have a chronic disease that I live with um, that started early in my 20s. I, I had many tests, you know, went through the hospital, a lot of medication through the years. It's not something curable. I'm on biologics right now. Uh, you couldn't tell, honestly, I'm, I'm I'm mostly in good shape. Um, I, I told you already, you know, I'm a cyclist. So, but I just wanted to highlight it and to tell it I live comfortably with it. You know, it took me a while to accept it, but I think this probably helped me a lot with resilience in life and a good tolerance for pain as well. So I think it's something as well that held, did help me navigating the markets, especially the volatility and probably more the psychological side of it. So, you know, point is, is for the listeners out there, it's, you know, sometimes you do get challenged in life and especially your health, you know, it's, it's probably your first priority as a human being, but sometimes you think this could be a weakness, but you could actually transform that and have this become an advantage for you. And yeah, so I learned about fire. I started to make like projections about my portfolio. I saw we'd be working for another, you know, 30 years. So I, I decided to increase my saving rate and started to was really motivated, as I told you, but by this idea of freedom and doing, you know, whatever I wanted to do type of stuff. So, and I, I realized I needed to generate higher returns. I would not get there 
to where I wanted to be with just, you know, a passive investment strategy. So I, I started to dabble, you know, in individual stocks. That was post-crisis. You know, market has rebounded at this time, but I, I didn't really know what I was doing, to be honest. I tried different approach. I did, you know, day trading, swing trading, dividend investing, larger cap. So try to old stuff, mid, long-term, whatever. So I like to tell people I paid, uh, you know, I got an MBA, but I paid my MBA to the market. I don't have an actual MBA. Um, that means for people that never uh, got that is I lost a lot of money. I'm probably going to pay more eventually. Uh, hopefully I won't get to the PhD or uh, fellow. I'll try. I, hopefully I'll try to minimize this. Uh, who knows? We'll see, you know. In 2013, I had the chance to be mentored by a professional trader. So it's kind of funny how that happened. But the husband of someone I was working with was actually a pro trader. And I was like, you know, at this point, I was in my journey of like trying to generate returns, that kind of stuff. So, you know, I was doing individual investing. It, not that it wasn't really working. I had a few larger caps with, which were doing okay, right? Some dividend stocks, well-known, that kind of stuff. But I was really, really kind of trying to dig into that rabbit hole at this point, reading as much books as possible and stuff. So this guy took me a little bit under his wings for a few months. So taught me a lot about, you know, market behavior, uh, flow of money, uh, market awareness, all stuff that really stick with me throughout the years. Very good lessons. It's kind of funny at the end because he was more into day trading, but he kind of got me into an illiquid stock and you know he was on the other side of the trade and I lost like about 2,000 bucks at the time so that was quite a bit of money for me anyway but it was just a lesson and he told me he's like you know what I told you to listen to your own guts so that was kind of a you know hard lesson and you know he made me lose money on it and it was kind of his I guess his fees as well for this time so I took this as a lesson nevertheless and I'm I'm in good terms with him, so. <laughs> you know, I went to a cafe recently and this cafe says that every test will become a tested money. You know, we can yeah. always look at it and, and then think of a positive side that comes out from it, right? So um, so there was some journey that you actually went through and I think you finally came out really strongly towards the end, right? Because, uh, yeah. you know, I forgot to mention to the audience that uh, in 2018, you did a 12% return on your portfolio. That's incredible, right? Then you follow up that with a 123% return in 2019. And last year, there's 134% return. And that is absolutely jaw-dropping, right? So, you know, Maxim, I have to ask you, what kind of magic are you performing, right? Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, what, what is your unique process right now? So what is the investment strategy? And what kind of companies do you look at right now today? Yeah, so see, you think my 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 returns are jaw-dropping. And I look at your returns for 2020 and you had around... 260%. So I, and I think that was job dropping, right? So I think it's always a question of perspective, how you see at it. So, and people tend to look at the tip of the iceberg. They don't look at all, you know, the work underneath. So you got that image online that you've probably seen several times and people listening, um, they don't see the work behind it. So the work has been done probably several years ago. And the way I look at what rate I have compounded my capital is really, you know, over the years, that matters. And it's the CAGR, right? So I, I'm, to me, it doesn't matter if one year, you know, you've got super returns. You know, the, the way I see how successful and the longevity of an investor in the market is, you know, throughout the years, how he's going to perform the index, if so. So I, 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 
that's what I ask. Like a lot of times I, I'm going to talk to investors or fund managers and stuff and they post a good year. And, you know, I try to ask, okay, what's your CAGR over the years? And, you know, I want to know how they compound, what's the internal rate of return they have. So that's how I look at it. Uh, in terms of my investment process, um, it does evolve over the years for sure. Uh, if I could summarize it in one sentence, I would say I'm looking for business that are overlooked on, on love uh, for whatever reason by the market um, that I think will have a good runaway for growth ahead. And that I think will have the first signing in kind of multiple re-rating uh, and as well that can compound afterwards and that are run by an outstanding management team. So I just realized I said a lot of N in, in this. There's a lot of elements to it, right? Management, you know, the qualitative side of the business, uh, the culture, the employees, customers, suppliers, all the relationship are key for me. Uh, I worked for, for, in business for many years and, you know, I've experienced that it's all based on relationship. So it, it, it does have a big impact on my investment process and it's an area I always like to read or learn more or, you know, discuss with other investors for sure. So I like to have optionality in my investment. That is a bonus, uh, you know, anything that can surprise investors, let's be honest. Um, and uh, especially, you know, misunderstood by the market. Usually people don't do their homework, so they won't understand these call options. Um, and, um, you know, I like to, to imagine a business as well that can be bigger than it is in a few years from now. So I, I like to, you know, we, we all try to see we're a long-term investor. What, what does that mean? But I try to invest like for a few years ahead. Um, I usually try to keep my position, you know, a few years out to, for the thesis to play. So, yeah. And I like as well to think, you know, where's the flow of money going to come into a stock? So, uh, I try to favor uh, companies that have less in institutional ownership that will be discovered by the market. So that, that's what I discovered with the years at work. Buying a stock like this for me, I think I have a better margin of safety than buying a well-full company by you know, 20, 30 analysts, whatever it is, or famous compounder. I'm not saying these are not good strategies. Uh, and I've held, you know, uh, famous compounders I do uh, as well but you know it's not my favorite strategy to generate uh, higher returns so I, I'm very concentrated investors usually between six to eight position uh, I never understood how a single investor can go from you know hold 15 to 50 positions um, you know I have a hard time following eight business to be honest so for me I, I like the KISS principle so I use that all my life working and it's the keep it simple, stupid. So I don't think I'm that smart. I, I just try to be efficient with my time and I want a life outside of investing. So I try to know as much about my position and I know I won't know everything, but I use the kind of 80-20 rule, the Pareto rule to try to know, you know, maybe 80% of the company, you know, there's always going to be unknowns. So I'm, I'm fine with that. So so yeah, I take concentrated position in business that I have a high conviction on, uh, which will be the business I would spend the majority of my time. At, uh, so I, I've took position up to 50, 60% of my portfolio at times. And, and the reason I went concentrated and I've read, you know, many investors have been, you know, Peter Lynch has been uh, a big influence, uh, Joel Green, Greenblatt, that kind of stuff. So 
But, you know, I work with in business with uh, a lot of suppliers, a lot of entrepreneurs, and, you know, a lot of them had all their network tied to their business, right? They remortgaged their house, credit cards, took all their life savings, you know, started a business. So they fully invest in their business. And we look at these entrepreneurs and it's kind of okay for them to do that. But as investors, sometimes you read and, you know, you should take a diversified approach. So I had a lot of questioning about that throughout the year. So I think as an individual investor, you know, I, 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 I took that kind of entrepreneur approach where, you know, you do that maintenance due diligence on a company, you have a high concentration and, you know, make sure you follow it and try to understand as much to, to make sure there's no red flags, that kind of stuff. And, you know, I think Charlie Munger had about, you know, 50% in Geico at some point. And, you know, even Buffett right now, the most, I think, well-known investors, everyone can relate to or understand who Buffett is, you know, has 40% uh, give or take in Apple in his portfolio. So that, that's the kind of approach I have. So, um, you mentioned, you know, what are the quality of, uh, of the big winners I had throughout the years? Uh, first, for a big winner, I would like to say that I need to be excited about the business because otherwise I would not have taken a position in it and dig into the company or just be interested. I need to be interested in a company and, you know, have the conviction in order to be a big winner. But um, just to be more specific into characteristics, I kind of like, but always flexible, you know, high insider ownership, a good capital structure, low options, preferably, you know, good balance sheet. Usually I like 20 to 30% revenue growth. Uh, I prefer smaller cap. Uh, you know, I think they can, uh, the snowball effect is better there. A company with, you know, competitive advantage in each market, you know, and high focus on the qualitative side, the management, the team, the employees, you know, the culture, so to speak. So two major qualities uh, that I want to highlight that did drive my returns over the years. And I kind of want to put them in two buckets. Uh, the, the first one is probably unloved by the market for whatever reason. And that still has that kind of twin engine going on in terms of revenue and earnings per share growing. So uh, Chris Mayer and 100 Bagger really explained this really well and has been a big influence, this book, into my process. And the second bucket is pretty, pretty much overlooked uh, opportunities. You know, no one's looking and you will get that first kind of multiple re-rating, whatever you look at it, uh, because of mar market awareness and the start of institutional money flowing into it. So market awareness and institutional flow is really something I, I, I think a lot about when I look at a business, you know, who's going to buy it next. That's, you know, one of the first question I get, you know, if I'm going to take a position. Well, that's incredible. I, I totally agree with you. You know, hunger beggars have made a profound uh, impact in, in the way I invest as well. Because if you look at today, a lot of companies who are, uh, which are well-known, you know, you have that. I think most of the time, the share price is being driven up by earnings growth. But today, if you look at some of unloved companies, which I'm sure later on, we'll talk a little bit on that. You have both uh, earnings growth and also uh, multiples growth, right? So yeah. um, I have this question that I've always wanted to ask because... I think one of the toughest thing for us as investors is to resist locking our gains, you know, and I saw a chart, I think uh, it was on Twitter. It says that, you know, investors who are locking about 200% returns, they may think they've earned a lot of money, but later on, as you compound even further, 
then they feel like they are fools, right? For selling early. Yep. And I and I know you own a, a name, which uh, I've missed the name totally. I, I came across <laughs> it, but I missed it. So, uh, you know, it, it hurts me to say this, but anyway, uh, you own Expel, and it, it, yep. it's been a while, right? You know, since uh, 2020, uh, the stock has been up, you know, more than, uh, you know, 100%. I think it has done really, really well. So I just want to ask you, right? Because sometimes when investors who are sitting about sitting at 200% gains, 100% gains, or even more than that, you know, they are seeing their returns compound every week. And it is just so hard in my mind, you know, to resist taking profit. So what was your thinking process like? And, and what really kept you uh, calm and really allowed you to continue holding the stock week in and week out, despite seeing the stock price kept going up? Yeah. So yeah, it's been a wild ride, as you said, for sure. Maybe I had a few sleepless nights along the way. Uh, but seriously, uh, the key that had stopped me from taking all my profits, because uh, I did take some along the way, I'll explain later, but you know, it was the product kept selling no matter what. And the, the way to kind of monitor that was by doing a lot of scuttlebutt but research, you know, uh, slow investor book, right? Or, you know, uh, it, it's been key, uh, you know, Conducting due diligence, I visited the Parasol Distribution Center in Canada, uh, some franchiser, uh, I talked to employees, monitored their sell, I met the CEO with another investor, uh, talked with other shareholders as well throughout Twitter to build conviction, share information as well, you know, to help over time in order to uh, catch most of the gains of, of this position. My average cost is like $1.40. Uh, most of my shares uh, were acquired uh, following the 3M lawsuit. Uh, the stock became unloved by the market for sure at this point, but the revenue were still growing no matter what. So that was kind of the ticking point for me. And, you know, I talked about that, that pro trader that mentored me and he had like a really contrarian approach of, you know, going into stocks that were depressed and unloved by the market. So it kind of really stick to me because I, I had seen and heard about, you know, someone who's been successful this way. But yeah, part, part uh, as well was, you know, the CEO was such a great leader, um, really value the qual that qualitative aspect as well. I did work in procurement and manufacturing, you know, with many companies over the years that did business with 3M and with 3M. Anyway, uh, 3M just to everyone, right? They try to eat everyone pies. So if you look a little bit at what 3M is doing, um, can't blame them, but that's part of their business model. But, um, you know, I met with this CEO with another investor, uh, Matthews on Twitter, which, you know, I, I, I do have to thank a lot for into my journey as well. Um, and, and, you know, we pretty much explained after the, the 3M settlement that, you uh, you know, 3M sued them and, you know, they, they kind of asked them, you know, what's their magic? How, how, how's your brand so powerful, right? So, you know, that kind of, you know, I had this little light in my head at this point. I'm like, wow, this is, this is great. Like, and I added more shares at this point. So after this meeting, but I did sold uh, about, you know, 70% of my position when it hit the 10 bagger, you know, that kind of magic number, you know, Peter Lynch, you know, you got to chase those 10 baggers that everyone's dreaming of. So, um, you know, in insight, was it the best decision? You know, at the time, it was more a question of risk management for me at this point, it had become a huge, huge position in my portfolio. And not gonna lie, it did become life changing money at this point. So 
you know, the rest of my position I'm keeping for now, it's close to probably a 40 bagger, give or take. Uh, but, um, you know, as long as management conti continues executing, I'm going to keep my position. There's a good, I see a good runway for growth ahead of them. So uh, another reason I want to highlight this as well, you know, I sold my position as well. I did model the company and I had this, you know, it kind of hit my valuation target and it was like two years out in my time frame. So, um, and oh boy, what I, was I wrong, right? In insight, but you know, uh, I don't think I can think like that anymore. I, I'm super careful about putting price target on investment and even, you know, modeling a price target on my end. Um, I did learn, you know, over the years, you know, the intrinsic, intrinsic value is not static. Obviously a business evolves with time. So, but, you know, I have a hard time as well, you know, to judge the market consensus type of stuff. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of difficult for me. Um, I think it's probably a challenge for all investors out there. So I kind of favor now this kind of framework where theoretically, you know, a business should continue to compound their capital at the rate of their return on invested capital, return on, on capital employed, whatever you want to look at it. So there's good like um, documentation and symbol capital as a good blog with a lot of studies as well that, you know, uh, the rate of return of a stock should trend towards their return on invested capital. So if I think a company can continue to compound, now I try to let them ride. It's easier said than done, obviously. So. Wow, I, I think what you have shared is so incredible because while you are sharing, Maxim, I was just thinking back in, in our lifetime, you know, what are some of these amazing opportunities and how often do they come around, right? So sometimes I also do have this different perspective whereby if I sell this company, uh, what, what else can I invest in whereby, you know, I, I feel that equally they will both do well. And and often I, I do come back with the same answer is that I, I hold on with the current company that they continue to execute. And sometimes it may not be a bad idea as well. And I can totally feel you as well, because like how Expelled became a big position in your portfolio, uh, C-Limited is currently right now is a big position and I still continue to hold on to that. Okay, so yeah. let's maybe move on, right? Because I know that... Uh, we have been talking a lot about this company and you have been sharing uh, a lot about this company and you even create a sub stack whereby you talk about uh, this company. So this company is none other than a Clearpoint Neuro. Uh, yeah. we, have, we have a lot of mutual friends who are in, in this uh, company and we are all uh, long-term shareholders in this. So I just yeah. want to ask you and also for the benefit of all listeners here, so what's Clearpoint Neuro and what really makes, you know, makes this company appealing to you? Because after all, this is not a company that is easy to understand. And I yep. think furthermore, it's loss making, right? So what, what, what makes it so appealing uh, to you? And, and I would assume that uh, this is, uh, could be one of your top five positions as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah, to simplify things, uh, Clearpoint is not easy to understand. You need to take the time to look at it. So it, is, it was overlooked by the market for sure. Now it's started to get some market awareness for sure. But you know, for the listeners out there, out there to simplify things, you know, just Clearpoint is really a platform for biologics and drug delivery to the brain uh, with multiple partners. And that, that's been growing the three digits for now. And they have a med tech segment, more the functional side of things growing, you know, probably 20% plus, give or take, you know, COVID has affected a bit the company. But just to summarize a company, that's how I see it. I find it is unique because it's one of the only company out there who does 
deliver a drug through the brain barrier through an MRI in real time. There's no, there, there, there is other technology out there, but none in real time. So that's what makes it very unique. And that platform for biotech, so to speak, is nothing that I have seen out there in the market. So right now, if you look at this company, you know, it is a uh, loss making right now. And, and, you know, typically for many investors, if they see a company that's loss making, they tend to shun the company away. They tend to move away from the company. So could you speak to us a little bit like uh, currently they are loss making, but why is that appealing to you? And do you see them becoming profitable? How, how soon can they be profitable? And could you speak a little bit about the management of ClearPoint to us? Yeah, so... How I see it in terms of profitability, it is not profitable yet. You're right. If you track the cash flow from operations, uh, it's been trending up since Q1 in 2020 at a good rate. So I, we'll see how it goes, but I think by 2022, probably early, the first few quarters, we should hit profitability. Obviously, COVID hit the company. So I think the way I see it for now, that's how I looked at it. It, it, it was overlooked by the market, uh, but I think it did get that first kind of binding of multiple berating of market awareness. There's been a, a, a bit of flow of institutional money as well with the execution of the company. You know, the whole med tech sector has re-rated as well. Intuitive Surgical has started an investment fund. So there's been a lot of money flowing in that. So I, I try not to look at it too much on a trailing 12 month, you know, enterprise value to sales. I try to go as per future expectations, so I kind of model a bit the different revenue stream and kind of go about that. For now, that's how I look at it in terms of valuation, in terms of comparable in the market. And, you know, LED has, has acquired like Prevail for like a billion plus uh, for a company that doesn't even have like, you know, drugs that have been uh, to, you know, phase two yet. So with, with all the partners they have, you know, I think it should have an enterprise value of over a billion dollars, or at least that's what I see in the next few years. So that's just my thinking in terms of valuation. I'm going to look more into traditional metrics like price to earnings, enterprise value to EBITDA, whatever, FCF, yield, that kind of stuff like later on uh, once it's going to be profitable. But yeah, that's how I, I look at it right now in terms I don't have like a, trying not to have a specific target. I try to have like a lot of data and kind of my my wrap my head around this and and yeah in terms of of management the company in 2017 had joe burnett coming on board from phillips uh, and i think he's really turned around the company it's kind of a joel greenblatt type of investment for me he really focused his strategy on the biologics and drug delivery so when when i discovered the company it there was only one person on twitter talking about it was michael bigger that's how I found out about it. Uh, Michael found it from a hedge fund in Toronto called Next Edge Capital. And, and, and they found out about this opportunity in a meeting with Voyager Therapeutics. And, you know, that same day were working on this drug and delivering through the brain. And, you know, wait a minute, how, how is this working? So that's how, the, uh, that's how this opportunity came to my, my attention. And in 2017, they had five pharmaceutical partners at this point. And I added it on my watch list and started to follow the company and Joe Burnett came on board. And then you could see like the, the pharmaceutical partners keep growing and growing and there was something special there. And, and the management, you know, throughout the years and especially, you know, the last 2020, you know, brought up the whole team of 
of Biologics and Delivery, but just gaining so many key people coming from Philips. So a lot of people from his previous endeavor has followed him as a leader to this new company. They just hired Dr. Ernesto, who's a, a specialist in, in gene therapy and, and that kind of stuff. So they really have like a lot of key people. You can look at it. I'm not going to talk about all of this here, but uh, just like when I saw that all these people are coming together and you know they're the neurosurgeon are adopting the technology, they're supporting the neurosurgeon, they have clinical specialists going there on site. You know, yeah, that's kind of like, you know, we like to, to say that kind of flywheel effect or whatever you want to call it. But, you know, you had that, that special like kind of relationship with everyone. And that kind of resonated a lot with me throughout what I've experienced working uh, throughout my career. So that that's kind of what makes it special for me. And I had like this moment that, you know, there is really something there. So I did accumulated like quite a few shares, like, you know, around the four dollar range. I did average up this year with all the development in terms of uh, partners again, and you know, seeing that all these partners have a lot of phase two, phase three trials. So it's not just preclinical stuff. So you don't you have zero downside from these trials. They still make money as well. Uh, obviously, the the holy grail will be if one of these trials are going to be approved. You know, then we're going to get these huge time of recurrent revenue every year. But, you know, it needs time like every other investment. AADC is coming up with uh, the, the trial from PTC is probably the first one to be approved. So the, the data looks good for now. So we're waiting for that. So that's probably going to be a good catalyst for the company. And the market will probably at this point, I think, re-rate the company uh, further. So it really seems like a lot of exciting developments uh, that's happening inside Clearpoint and I'm pretty excited for, for it as well. So if I could zoom it out, right, Maxim, like if I look at the companies that we talk about it so far, you know, Expel, uh, Clearpoint, if I could just string them together, it seems like they have really strong patterns or certain trademark or or maybe things which are in the medical field. So if I could ask you, do you have certain bias towards certain industries? Like for example, uh, do you not invest in maybe a property or, or do you uh, more focus your time on to brands with a strong branding uh, proposition like Expel? Or are you focusing more on the medical field? Or do you look at companies that uh, enjoy a tremendous uh, network effects? So what are the industries that you, you, you play at and you found a lot of successes in? Yeah, the iAvoid resource uh, and pretty much I think that's it. Probably real estate as well. Um, you know, that's the two areas I won't invest in, but I don't have any bias. I'm going to look at any type of industry as long as I can. I'm excited about it and I want to learn more about it. I think that's the key driver. I think you can learn about any uh, industry if you take the time. So I don't have any bias beside the two. Uh, sectors I mentioned. Yeah, so that, that's pretty cool. So I also realized that, you know, when we invest, you know, it, it is something that I only learned um, in the last three years of investing is that when we invest, we are not just buying the company, but we're actually buying into the founder and his team of people, their energy, their ambition, their passion, and their innovation. So essentially, I, the way I look at it, we are actually investing really in the management's ability to execute, to get things done. So I think one of the most difficult things for most investors to evaluate is this word called execution. How, how do you know whether the management team is able to get things done instead of just talking about it? Because we, we do know of a lot of management who can yeah. talk a lot, but they perhaps 
uh, may not be able to deliver the product and, and they bring us for a ride. So what are some key performance indicators or, or, or any form of measurement to say that, hey, you know, this management is executing, they're on point, they're on track and, and things is going to uh, go well for them. Yeah, it's funny. You said they talk a lot. I've seen so many management throughout the years and so many investments that have gone wrong through that. But yeah, the first thing I look is really monitor sales. You know, uh, we need to monitor revenue uh, and how are they selling their product? Try to understand that the customer adoption, try to talk to customers to get that information, get, you know, find out reports, research, whatever, talk to investors. Do they have new products coming into different vertical market? You know, then over time you track on a year over year basis, you look at the history, what they've done, uh, try to understand if they have pricing power, uh, is there a future M&A coming, they have partnerships for new products uh, into new markets, that kind of stuff. Management, as you said, you know, um, and, and hiring, you know, who, who are they hiring and what are they hiring for, you know, sometimes you can get clues. Uh, they are hiring for another segment for the business, that kind of stuff, a new segment they've talked about, and now they're hiring like three, four people. Uh, that should be a clue to investors out there to kind of understand more. You know, try to assess the quality of, of, of the team they're assembling together, look at their history, where are they coming from. You know, a lot of it is based on relationships. I've talked a lot, or I, I, I try to highlight this, so try to understand the relationships. As well, you need to, I find, monitoring the competitive landscape as well. Uh, we, and I find maybe it was me and how I evolved, but you know, I, 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 I was more doing this analysis in the beginning and tried to you know, tend to forget it with time, but you know, business and envir environment evolve over time. So there's always new entrants coming or it might come in. Uh, is it a monopoly, duopoly? Is there a few players? Uh, is it a crowded environment? That kind of stuff. So will they, get, will they get their lunch eaten, basically? So you need to understand their competitive advantage, how they will protect it, make sure their profits will they run over time for sure. You know, strategic investors into a business is always, I think, a bonus. Uh, who are they attracting in terms of investors? So if you're able to find smart investors, uh, like yourself that are invested as well is a good thing, but it's not static information, right? Uh, in my opinion, the information needs to be reevaluated over time uh, and you just need to do maintenance due diligence. A lot of investing I find is about deduction and reading between the lines. Uh, you don't always have the perfect information and confirmation to make decisions. You know, Maxim, it's just so incredible. The kind of information that you're giving us is, is a lot of golden nuggets over there. And, and listeners, uh, you know, you guys are really in for a treat because how I wish there could be someone like Maxim, you know, when I first started to really tell me that these are the things to look out for. Because, you know, last time when, when we were investing, we were just looking at simple numbers, but then we realized that there are actually a lot more things that we actually have to uh, look into as well. So, you know, these are really, really signs of uh, management executing. But I also want to throw you another question. Were there companies in the past, let's say, uh, 10 years of investing or so, where you gave up on them or, or perhaps you have sold the company because you realized they are not going anywhere? You could just give us an example. Uh, if you want to exclude the name, just feel free to exclude. You want to include the name, also up to you. <laughs> I won't give out names, but many, many. I, I, I wouldn't even know where to start. But as you said, you know, 
projections of cells and you know not having any traction at all seen it over and over and over again so yeah i i just won't get there i don't want to trash any any company anyone associated with them <laughs> <laughs> all right i i think that's that's a great answer as well it's, it's not nice to shame companies but uh those companies yeah. would probably know who they are themselves. <laughs> uh, that's fine. They, they, hopefully they're on to better uh, terms now and move on to better projects. Let's keep it this way. All right. So, you know, um, in, in the world we are living in, I think research is getting more competitive with, uh, with a lot of Bloomberg, TechSet, Capital IQ. We have earnings transcript. You can uh, reach out to anyone on LinkedIn any investor right so I, yep. I think i think over time people are getting smarter so they are able to excel modeling really well read thank k's thank q's which are financial statements so i, I yep. the way i look at it today is that the great returns are being created it's really quite different you know the manner the procedures so for you uh in, in your in your perspective because uh, i think the last three years has been fantastic right for you um so we'd like to ask yep. you today right how can an ordinary investor generate really great returns in, in today's world? Because um, I, I think, you know, could it be because uh, you have a better network? Is it because you have a better way of looking at things? So could you share with us, like, for you, what are some um, key lessons for the last three years where, where, where it allowed you to generate really great returns? Yeah, so, yeah, as I mentioned, and for investors out there, you know, I don't, I don't, I realize I don't really have a, an edge for larger caps that are well covered. And, and yeah, fishing in the smaller cap area and misunderstood area of the market where not all investors took time to look into it or fewer people and try to find those few people that looked into it is a really good uh, thing to do. And you mentioned it, everyone has access to data now. You know, I, I don't have access to Bloomberg, but I have TKR, which is free and Kofin charts. Uh, which I just want to highlight here. I'm, I'm not promoting them or pay, but it's just, you know, I, I, I don't pay for any tools. So those are the only free tools right now, but they provide great data to look at, you know, income statement and, and all that kind of stuff, but the transcripts, as you mentioned. So I, I find, you know, beyond the data, you need to focus on, on analyzing the business, understanding, you know, we've talked already competitive advantage, the relationship into people and the business, and, you know, I want to make an analogy, but just like in, in, in business, everyone has a highly specialized task, right? But it's a collaboration of everyone together that, you know, is bringing the business to life. And, and you know, if you read the book Sapiens, uh, you know, human evolution is based on, you know, 70,000 years of, of evolution, but we are where we are today because of collaboration, right? So... Don't sit alone in a corner. Uh, collaboration is key to help connecting the dots um, and to challenge your thinking as well. You know, Twitter, FinTwit, as, as people like to call it, has been game changer for me to been amazing to network with investors like you and many others, you know, and collaborate on investments, dig out more information. You know, just go out, talk to people as well. Uh, you know, try to talk to companies employees, suppliers, competitors, you know, share with others what you found out, you know, they might have other info that you haven't looked, obviously everyone look at different stuff. So with the collaboration of everyone, you can wrap your hand better around an investment, a thesis, make your own thesis and, you know, start connecting the dots. So yeah, one word, I think relationship is really a key advantage to generate, you know, superior returns in this market. 
I, I really like the way you say it, right? It's just like how we have worked on ClearPoint together. I've yeah. benefited from your research and I think likewise, you know, uh, we have mutual yeah. friends who, who share information with one another yeah. very freely as well. So, you know, I, I thought about this thing, right? Because uh, recently, uh, because of the treasuries uh, bonds, the 10 years treasury bonds, the U has been moving up quite a lot and that has caused a lot of volatility in the stock market and including some of the stocks that we have bought, you know, the, the prices have came off quite a little bit. I just want to find out from you uh, in your investing process, how much do you incorporate uh, economic activities or economic indicators or do you not look at them at all? Because, you know, this is a question that I also struggle, you know, like when people ask me, you know, I, I don't know how to answer because for me, I, I don't, but I do not know, is, is that a dangerous uh, move? But, you know, I'd like to hear from you as well. Yeah, um, to, to be honest, I try not to care too much. I learn not to care too much. I really focus on the business. Um, and, you know, some investors out there, are, you know, doom is coming, that kind of stuff. So uh, I'm more optimistic, I would like to say, than a pessimistic. So I try not to care too much about the macro environment. Some traders are doing right in the, you know, uh, betting on, on the market, that kind of stuff, you know, fine for them if it works for them. But for me, it's just a complete waste of my time. Uh, I try to be efficient and I try to focus on what I can understand. So understanding the market moving for me, I, I just don't, uh, I'm not, I don't think anyone knows and can forecast this. So the people that do fine and can, can benefit from that, but I just focus my time on what I can understand and just try to find companies that have pricing power. Um, or are in a specific niche of the market, have a competitive advantage. And, you know, uh, that, that's how I, I kind of go about, you know, if interest rates are going, for sure it might affect, but you know what, if the company has pricing power, it should turn out an okay investment in the end and still make money. So that's how I look at it. And also because of, of, of your view and your strategy, how much percentage of cash do you typically hold? Uh, or or you, you try to deploy them as, as the moment you see uh, opportunity in the, in the stock market? Yeah, my, the, the, I, I'm pretty bad at keeping cash, I got to say. When I have, it's kind, it kind of, I like to say it burns through my end, but reinvesting it. Uh, so I usually, I'm, I'm fully invested right now. Um, I, and I'm usually am. I went through COVID fully invested as well. I didn't really have cash aside. The way I looked at it is I keep a few like, more compounder that kind of more not safer company but more i don't know not emerging growth company that are going to be more my cash position that's how i see it so if i don't have another good idea i'm going to keep it in a compounder that kind of stuff so you know i'm i'm hopefully still going to make a little bit of money or my margin of safety is maybe a bit safer where you know uh, my downside is a little bit more protected from my cash but i just like to have a few position like that. And it, it's not much. It, it might be at a time between five and 10% of my portfolio, with, with, which would be in these type of companies. And, you know, I would redeploy the cash into, you know, smaller cap or more, if I see more uh, an opportunity that falls into my two buckets of like overlooked and unloved by the market that I see have potential. So that, that's how I manage my cash position. And, and as a full-time investor, I need to keep cash as well for paying for my expense. So I do pull out money, but I try to keep out like six months of expense in cash in a checking account, which is 
just not invested and it is just money that won't be invested. So I got to think about that as well. Sounds like uh, being a full-time investor is not really easy, but uh, you know, I, I, I'm really happy that you, you became a full-time investor and uh, definitely there's a lot more things uh, that we can continue to exchange. So I just coming to the last few parts of, of this uh, podcast, you know, you know I, I think as investors, we often beat ourselves up for you know, missing some opportunities. And, but over time, I figure out things you know, do work out eventually and we'll be fine. Um, so I, this very important question that I always ask uh, many investors, you know, so what are some biggest lessons you have learned cumulatively uh, over the years? And uh, if you could just tell us something to your younger self in terms of investing, what, what, what would be the, those lessons about? Yeah, and I'll, I'll split that probably into two, two kind of lessons, more lessons that I uh, more noticed myself and the other lessons are going to be more from mes- mentors and investors along the way that helped me. So the first part, like what I've noticed and what, you know, I, I encourage listeners, you know, just be curious. Uh, I, I think you can learn anything. Uh, we have that thinking sometimes or had that thinking younger, you know, you go to school, you learn uh, work, you know, a certain job and you're going to do that for the rest of your life. So change that thinking, you know, books are available. Uh, you know, Google is amazing, you know, and on Twitter, you have so much information to learn about investing. There's no reason not to learn. Uh, it's just your own willingness. So don't be afraid to ask questions. Um, that's one of my first lessons. The second one is learn about your, your mistakes because you're going to make a lot along the way. You will lose money. It's okay. It's part of the process of learning. I still do, uh, probably going to do in the future, but you know, you got to go over it. Um, and, and be resilient and, and continue to, to pursue um, about it. So talk to other people, you know. Uh, for me, it's, 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 it's hard to learn about a mistake reading in a book or from someone else. I need to make it myself. And because, you know, I'm not that smart, I usually do the same mistake twice. So after that, usually it starts to, uh, I start to internalize the mistake and kind of, uh, try to avoid it in the future. Uh, the third one is probably trust your guts. Um, you know, my best decision always came when I listened to myself and not other people out there. Um, and that I did my own work, of course, on a business. If I didn't end up doing um, my own work, my due diligence, you know, I always end up selling. So, um, you know, trust your guts. You know, I always kick myself for, for for repeating this over and over to myself you know sometimes i've talked about this i looked at something talked to someone about it and you know it kind of convinced me out of it and you know in the end i should have just listened to myself uh so trust your guts the other the last uh, my last advice before i go over like uh more from mentors i had throughout the years is just have fun you know um, for me, as long as I'm learning something um, and I get to exchange with other investors, companies, you know, uh, and I, I, I'm going to enjoy investing. So that's why I'm doing this. Uh, and you got to be excited about investing um, and, and about learning about new business. Otherwise, you know, maybe investing is not for you. Just reconsider this just a note for people listening. So more the lessons that I learned from mentors you know, investors that helped me along the years, you know, the first one is patience. Um, it's so simple, but so hard at the same time. Uh, most people, most analysts out there look at the next quarter 
you know, while I work in, in, in business, you know, we had these different strategic initiatives that sometimes could took like three, five years in terms of being fruitful for companies. You know, I'm thinking, um, you know, company, we had to increase operational margins of like 10%, um, you know, different growth initiative in sales, you know, it, it, business takes time. Um, you know, it's people collaborating again and moving things. So it does take time. Another lesson that comes from the trader that um, helped me was should have, would have, could have, you know, so short and sweet lesson. It's stick with me over the years. Uh, you know, all the regrets, uh, everything you could have done, you know, just move on. You know, uh, there's always something better you can do. You're always going to have regrets. Just, you know, learn from that, that move on. And coming from other full-time investors, uh, you know, when I decided to make the leap of faith, I, I felt I have enough money. I was confident enough in my skills. You know, what's funny enough, I decided to become a full-time investor during the COVID crisis after my portfolio crash of like 20, 30%. Um, but yeah, my, I, I talked a little bit about my health, my career. I, you know, we started a family not too long ago. For me, investing was taking way too much time with my career and my health uh, was struggling uh, the last few years. Um, so it, it was one, you know, a few catalysts to become a full-time investors, but talking to full-time investors out there, you know, and I had this comment over and over again, you know, is take your mind off the market uh, regularly. And, you know, that's just to find another passion in life, another activity, you know, for me, it's biking, it helps me, you know, clear my mind, be in the flow, so to speak, to really kind of help, you know, develop another skill that you can see, you can progress, you can improve. Uh, I do think, and what other investors told me, you know, you got to look at compounding and everything in your life and it will help to shape your mind and to, to, to be, to develop a better resilience in the market. The other one is uh, develop your imagination uh, you know, we got to think about, we're investing in companies that we think, you know, in a few years are going to be at a certain stage, you know, we can do Excel model, that kind of stuff, but you do need a few imagination as well. So a lot of people told me, you know, same thing again, you know, disconnect from the market, do outside things about, uh, beside investing, uh, that are going to be a bit more creative, maybe to help your mind kind of wander. Uh, try to disconnect, you know, from your smartphones, that kind of stuff, but just disconnect from the market as well. And last but not least is develop your self-awareness of your own behavior. So it's easier said than done, but it's really uh, an introspection, an observation of how you behave, uh, just to know how you hack, that kind of stuff. And, and after that, you can reflect, read about it, how you've acted in the market, how you've what was your decision with this company? And it's kind of a very, very broad topic. Um, and it took me time to, you know, dig more into that. Uh, I'm still digging into it. I'm still thinking about it and, and try to read, discuss and analyze how I behave and to try to improve myself. But a lot of successful investors, edge fund managers, that kind of stuff that I talk to is one of the topic that I've noticed comes often as a recommendation. So yeah, those are my, uh, I guess uh, that's, that's a lot of lessons, but uh, yeah, that's what I, I wanted to share with you and your audience today. Maxime, I just want to say that, you know, you're someone that's incredibly humble. I think you keep things simple. 
And I think you're an incredible story of how someone ordinary could actually achieve uh, great results in the stock market. And, and, you know, it's just an inspiration. Your story is an inspiration to anyone who started with maybe not much in life, but, you know, could turn um, you yep. know, your, your life around. And I think you also shared that investing should be fun. We need to be passionate about it. We need to be curious about yep. investing and uh, be aware about our behaviors. And I just want to share that, you know, you gave us so much wisdom in this short podcast and it's just wonderful that you're sharing so uh, generously, right? Um, so we are coming to the end of this podcast right now. I want to thank you uh, for putting your heart into this and I know that you have prepared uh, for this as well. So uh, one last question, right? How can our listeners find out more about you? Yeah, the easiest way to learn more about myself, get in touch with me. I'm always happy to talk to any investors out there. Um, you know, it's on Twitter. My handle is MaxwellHouse99. So M-A-X-W-E-L-L-H-O-U-S-E-99. That's the best way to reach me. Uh, I started a Substack to write, you know, a little bit my thinking or some ideas, that kind of stuff. We'll see how that evolves over time, but the link is there as well on my profile. So um, again, just wanted to thanks, um, thank you, Kelvin, for having me on. Um, and I do hope, uh, you know, this podcast will inspire a few listeners out there and hopefully that they learn something. Thanks again. It's, it certainly will. All right. Thank you, Maxime. All right. See you again. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Growth Investing Secrets Podcast. If you like this podcast, do leave us a review and share this podcast with your friends on social media. Don't forget to tag me as well at Tavessor on Instagram. As always, say no to lousy companies and only buy into the best growth companies in the world. And I'll see you in the next episode.